All right. Thanks, everybody. Welcome back again. This is class number eight of the newly protracted Lost Road class. Uh, welcome. Glad you could be here tonight. Uh, really excited to talk, uh, to continue talking about the 1937 Quentin Silmarillion here with you tonight. Um, we've been uh, sort of taking uh, sort of one particular angle at it for a while, that is, we've been thinking about it as the culmination of Tolkien's early work on the Silmarillion, which which it is, it's really important in, in that way. Thinking about, you know, kind of, well, I don't know about you, but I've been kind of blowing my mind, imagining this getting published, right, and thinking about what Tolkien wanted to do uh, with it for publication. So that's, that's, that, that's one angle, that's what, what we've really been focusing on so far. Today we're going to look at this same text from kind of a different angle, that is to think about it from a different, a slightly different perspective. But first, two quick announcements. Not new things, but just reminders because time is rolling along. So... Um, uh, so first, a reminder that the fall semester at Signum starts next week. Um, we have an awesome uh, semester set up for us this uh, this this uh, term. We've gotten a wonderful response. We have a, 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 a new Signum University record for number of uh, of, of people enrolled uh, in our courses in our discussion sections, and uh, a, a new record for uh, new applicants to the program. And uh, it's it's been really great. It's been a very exciting uh, time. We're really kind of beginning. Of period of growth here and it's been really great but there's still time to join us we had two more applicants today which is really cool uh so anyway i hope that uh, again if you haven't gotten a chance to to think about it if you have any questions and kind of wondering about how it would work or how it might work for you feel free to uh to let us know there's the the email address or the contact form on our website uh, where you can contact us, and we'll be happy to try to answer any of the questions that you might have. Um, and I also want to encourage you for uh, for people who just want to audit a class. If you can't do the discussion sections, and you, but you just would like to to attend one of the classes, it's possible uh, to do that. Of course, the, the the number one class, the the, the new live class that we have this term um, that that uh, for our auditors is Dimitra Femi's uh, folklore class, which should be really, really cool. I, of course, especially recommend that uh, to those of you who did the Dracula class with me. You can uh, uh, dig deeper. Uh, remember how a couple times several of you were asking about like exactly how novel was this vampire concept, you know, and where did it stand in the popular culture and in tradition at that time? We kind of talked about that a little bit uh, for a really full and excellent answer to that question. Dimitri Femi's class is really where you want to go. Uh, so anyway, so that's reminder number one uh, about the fall semester beginning next Monday. Reminder number two, we are just about a month away now uh, from Midmoot, uh, from the Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Consortium, uh, which is going to be taking place at the University of Maryland right after Bilbo's birthday um, that weekend. So I hope that you'll be able to join us. That, too, is shaping up to be a really good crowd. Um, awesome panel of, uh, of of presentations that are going to be happening. We're having uh, Roland Flieger is going to come down, and she's talking about the, the next big Tolkien book that's being published that she's editing uh, on the lay of Ao True and Itrun. Uh, and we have uh, Janet Croft, who's coming and 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 giving a presentation. I'm going to be there. It's going to be it's going to be really cool. So I know that there are several of you who are regulars with us here. Yep, Arthur, I know, and and several others uh, who are going to be uh, um, who are going to be presenting papers and stuff. So that's great. You know, making presentations. Uh, so I really look forward to uh, to those discussions and interactions. Midmood has been so much fun uh, for the last couple of years and every year more fun. So I hope that uh, hope that you guys will be able to be able to join us. Um, so, OK, 
that's my two reminders. Uh, let's uh, dig into the Quintus Silmarillion. So three things, three things I want to talk about today. First, I want to sort of at the beginning look at, um, for lack of a better term, the state of the Tolkienian metaphysics at this point. Um, sort of what are some of the, the, the sort of philosophical and metaphysical ideas that we can see underlying his works and sort of a, a brief glance back at how that's changed uh, since the early days of his mythological works. Second, I want to be looking at the style and register of the Quintus Silmarillion. What kind of work are we reading? What role is this thing intending to play? Where are we really in the development of this thing, the Quintus thing um, uh, in its uh, sort of position as the primary vehicle uh, of Tolkien's mythology, which it has become by now. So again, what kind of work are we reading? What is it? Um, and I-, I hope to show you a little bit more clearly what I mean by that when we get there. And then third, and here's my ambition uh, to get to my third thing, uh, which is looking at the Quintus Silmarillion as it stands, again, not as the end point of the Silmarillion tradition, but as the midpoint, as this central term between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, um, because this is what he's doing. He's written The Hobbit, right? And it's it's coming out and it's being published, and he's doing the Silmarillion, preparing the Silmarillion for publication. So all the stuff we've been reading in this class, the Fall of Numenor stuff, The Lost Road, the uh, uh, the the Quintus Silmarillion, the Hlamas, the Annalindalay, the Annals, all those things in reverse order. All those things are the things he's been writing since he finished The Hobbit, right? And while that's been in the publication process, and he is now soon going to be leaving that and doing The Lord of the Rings. So really, you know, a lot of people think about, you know, he writes The Hobbit and then he goes to write a sequel to The Hobbit, and and it ends up being The Lord of the Rings, and that's true enough as a simple narrative. But of course. Really, in Tolkien's experience, it's not exactly how it was, right? He wrote The Hobbit, then he wrote this stuff, then he wrote The Lord of the Rings. So how um, how can we see the Quintus Silmarillion standing as that sort of transitional work in Tolkien's mind, uh, in, in Tolkien's writing, from The Hobbit and the, to The Lord of the Rings? And I think that we can see there's several passages that really jumped out at me this week um, uh, for sort of looking looking at it from that perspective. So that's where I hope to get before the end of class. We'll see how we do. All right. Let's start with the metaphysical question. Um, and uh, I think I can show uh, pretty quickly what I mean by this. Um, so things like this. So this is, uh, this is in the sun and the moon bit. At the first rising of the sun above the earth, the younger children of the world awoke in the land of Hildorian, in the uttermost east of Middle-earth, that lies beside the eastern sea. For measured time had come upon the earth, and the first of days, and the long awaiting was at an end. Thereafter the vigor of the Quendi that remained in the inner lands was lessened, and their waning was begun, and the air of Middle-earth became heavy with the breath of growth and mortality." For there was great growth in that time beneath the new sun, and the midmost lands of Middle-earth were clothed in a sudden riot of forest, and they were rich with leaves, and life teemed upon the soil and in the waters. Okay. Um, excellent. Um, good. Now, actually, Rachel, let me address your question before we go in and talk about this passage in detail. 
Rachel has a really good preliminary question, which she says she's she confesses she's been a little confused that, you know, I've been talking about like this is as close as he got to publication. But if that's so, you know, on what texts did Christopher base the published Silmarillion? There seemed still to be big things that are different between the two. Yeah, yeah, there are. Um, it's not that he never does any revision. He, he will come back to it. Um, he will come back to it. This is the closest he ever got in that later on he does revisions, but it was not really the same kind of like preparing for imminent publication thing. This, he really, this is what he wanted to send the publishers, right? After he did The Hobbit. Um, and when The Hobbit was successful and he was all keen, uh, to get this going second. He's going to do more revisions. Um, but, of course, Rachel, in typical Tolkien style, he's going to tend to go back and start at the beginning, revise, break off after a while, come back to it again, but not keep going. Instead, go back to the beginning again, which is why um, when, I mean, as we'll see, the Quintus Silmarillion doesn't go all the way, you know, this text that we're reading now doesn't go all the way through the end. Um, it breaks off before, for instance, we get to the fall of Gondolin. There's no account of the fall of Gondolin in this Quintus Silmarillion text that we're currently reading. And so, therefore, you can see that the text in the published Silmarillion that describes the fall of Gondolin is very, very close to the text even earlier than this one, uh, to the 1930 Quenta that's in volume four. And that's because it's the, it's the last time he ever described the fall of Gondolin. Never again in all of his many revisions did he ever get so far as that. And so, therefore, when Christopher Tolkien was looking for texts to use to include in the publication, he just he had to go with the, the latest one we had he had, which was in that case 1930. Um, so... Anyway, so that's that's just one example. Um, so we will see other other things that will happen, and of course, as we as we go through, assuming we continue our our, our drive through the uh, uh, the 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 history of Middle Earth series, uh, we'll see more of the stuff coming in uh, as we go along. Um, so when I say it's the closest it got to publication, I mean that this is the uh, this is this is sort of the most ready for publication. I think that Tolkien ever really had this. So that's 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 what I mean by that. Um, good. Okay. Excellent. So let's, uh, let's talk about this passage specifically and what we, uh, what we see here. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. See that, Yana, I I, I don't want to presume, right. I I don't want anyone to think that I'm trying to dictate the elections, right. I, you know, the, the the elections are open, you know, let the people speak. I'm, I'm not trying to prejudice things. I'm just saying, if we do that, then we'll, we'll definitely see that. Um, okay. Okay. All right. Um, so what do we, First, let's make sure we understand what's happening in this passage, right? And then let's see if we, you know, sort of can can sort of fathom its implications and the larger implications for sort of the world, the kind of the cosmology of Middle Earth, as Tolkien is describing it, um, and for his whole sort of mythological approach, right? But first things first, uh, and the uh, the first thing is uh, to understand what the passage is saying. So. Okay, so we've got the at the rising of the sun. So when the sun rises, three things happen, or rather one thing happens, which has three different consequences, right? One is men awake, right? When the sun comes up, the second child, the second of the children of Iluvatar, the latecomers, right, uh, awake. Um, so that's one thing that happens. Uh, the other, the second thing that happens is the burst of growth, right? Uh, the earth, the air of Middle Earth became heavy with the breath of growth and mortality, right? So both growth and mortality. Um, 
So there's great growth, right? This riot of forest. That's one of my favorite phrases in the whole Quintus Silmarillion. A sudden riot of forest. Uh, you almost never hear the word sudden. Uh, the, the adjective sudden is very rarely applied uh, to really anywhere near forests. Of course, it's not applied to forests, it's applied to riot, but, uh, but rarely does the word sudden, uh, is the sudden, is the word sudden used in relevance, uh, to forests, right? Um, so, but anyway, so we've got the, the rich, the life teeming on the soil and in the world. So, so we've got the men wake up, life explodes in Middle Earth. And what's the third thing? What's the third thing that happens? Men wake up, life teams, forests riot, and yes, good, the elves lessen. The elves, the vigor of the Quendi is lessened. Yes, exactly, Michael. It's the, it's the, it's, it's, it's the beginning of the decline, as Joyce and Michael and uh, Marie and James are pointing out. We've got the, this beginning of the fading process, right? Why is it that elves fade? Why, why should elves be fading? Of course, in The Lord of the Rings, that's kind of a given, right? That um, this is the fading, the fading time, right? That's, that's, that's a phrase. Uh, that's, uh, that's, isn't it Sam that uses the, fa- the phrase, you know, before the fading time, right? Um, why is this... Um, why is this the 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 fading time, right? Um, why are elves fading? When, when we're in the Lord of the Rings, why are elves fading in the Third Age? Well, we're given here a cosmological explanation of that, right? So when the sun rises, a new epoch begins. And it's not just sort of a way of thinking about it, right? It's not metaphorical. It is quite... There is quite literally a change, like a a physical change in the world. Remember, we came across this in the annals uh, when they were talking about the the years of of, of Valinor and the years of Beleriand, right? The years of of Valinor and the years of the sun, right? The years of the trees and and the years of the sun. And when the sun rose, time began to move faster. Um, Everything sort of progressed more quickly. And again, we talked about it at the time that it's easy to read that and, and just kind of think like, well, that that just means, uh, you know, like time flies when you're having fun or something, like that, right? You know, like it's just a, you know, time doesn't actually move faster. It's just that events became more rapid. No, no, actually things move more quickly. Um, there's more ch- more change. Things change more. Um, so we have to, Tolkien has, has, has several, at several places invited us to imagine an actual cosmological shift at this time. And he connects it with the air, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> Tomas is wanting to say the elves are, are oxidizing, right? That there's a, uh, there's a, there's a, a, a um, exactly due to the, the increase in photosynthesis. Uh, Tomas has a full chemical explanation of this uh, and how this comes about. Uh, Tolkien doesn't quite invite us to go to go exactly that far, right? Uh, in speculating for on physical causes, but at the same time, Tomas, that's that's actually the direction, right? It's not merely a kind of. I mean, there is a sort of a mythic significance, right? At the first rising of the sun, the men awake in Hildorian. That's a that's that that is a mythic statement, right? But it's more than just you know, like, and this begins the era of. There's a physical change. The air of Middle-earth 
is altered. There is a quality that changes. I don't know that it's just oxygen content or carbon dioxide content. Uh, you know, again, we don't really, um, we don't, he, he doesn't, he doesn't really invite us to think in those terms or, and on that exact level. And yet he does. But like I say, that is kind of the right direction. It does insist that there's a physical change and therefore it seems a physiological change with the elves. Right. So that's, that's interesting. This came up, remember, um, earlier on with the elves as well. Remember how they, the, the, the air of Middle-earth is needful to them, right? They can't, I don't know that they'd actually suffocate and die, but they, they, they need to go and breathe the air of Middle-earth at least every now and again, right? That's why the Calakiria was left open uh, uh, so that they could get through. And that the air could get through, right? We have this like, you know, elvish ventilation that has to come through the, the, the mountains into Valinor. Um, so again, that's, that's, that's interesting. One of the things, one of the conclusions that I think we can draw from this, or rather one of the patterns I think we can perceive, which is really kind of to say exactly the same thing, is that um, Tolkien's mythology is still interested, as it was in the, old, in the, in the, in the olden days, right? That is back in the teens, back in the back of the book, the Book of Lost Tales period. Tolkien's mythology is still interested in explaining stuff, right? What he's giving here is a concrete explanation for current states. Um, elves are fading. That's a given. That's the starting point, right? Elves have faded now in the modern world, right? We can see this, right? This is obvious. Why is that obvious? This is one of the premises that the Book of Lost Tales starts from. Um, those of you who uh, were who did the Book of Lost Tales class with me, and those of you who were especially virtuous in the Book of Lost Tales class, sufficiently virtuous to uh, 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 take care to read the uh, poems with some attention, will notice that most of the poetry that Tolkien was a lot. I won't say most. A lot of the poetry that Tolkien was writing in the teens and twenties involved this sort of perception from afar of elvish things that are faded and gone. This, um, you know, the, even uh, even a, a sort of a, a really silly and apparently frivolous poem like Goblin Feet, yeah, Tolkien's first published work, um, is still about this, uh, this idea of a mortal pursuing that, like, elvish things that he can perceive but that he can't touch or he can't catch up with and he can't find and he can't retain. Right? All he gets is brief glimpses from afar, uh, a, a, an echo of sound. The poem that I primarily think of in connection with this idea is Cortirian Among the Trees, which is, uh, I, I absolutely love um, uh, that poem. It's one of my favorites. I think that might be actually my very favorite of Tolkien's early poems, certainly. Um, but uh, anyway, it's it's uh, it's a wonderful poem. But that poem is is about a mortal who is in England, um, you know, in this in this place in England where elves used to live, right? And the marks of the elves are still there, and you can still you can still hear them. You can still and sometimes the lonely companies, right, are still you know you can still catch a glimpse of them and all that kind of thing. Um, so this is this is the starting point, right? And you can build that from within the mythology that we have available to us. That is, there are all these stories about fairies, right? Stories, stories of fairies exist and persist, but fairies have diminished over time, right? Nobody really 
there aren't so many fairy encounters anymore, right? All there is now in our modern world is a memory of fairies. A memory of fairies does persist, right? A memory of the elves does persist, still even in fairy tales that are still told. Um, I mean, even, you know, I mean, even Disney's Tinkerbell is still a memory of fairies, right? Even if she's a pitiful and sort of disturbingly oversexed little fairy, but still it's a memory of something fairy, right? Um, but anyway, uh, uh, there's, 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 that's, again, that's sort of the starting point in a sense of Tolkien's mythology. So one of the, the kind of questions that comes before everything else is how do we get here? Right? How do we get here? How did we get to the current situation where we have a culture, right? That's almost a hundred percent human, Right. We don't encounter the elves anymore, but we remember the elves, and the only stories that linger about the elves are about diminished, literally, physically diminished elves, um, and uh, and just sort of faded memories. How do we get here, right? How did this happen? Why did the elves fade? If they were here, why did they leave? If they were great, why are they gone, right? Uh, what happened to them? So, okay, so here's part of the explanation. This is just one step, right? But we can see this as part of the whole larger process. It's part of the basic sort of cosmological history of the world, right? Um, and of course, a big part, you know, we're, we're, we're moving up towards a major stage in that, which of course we spent a lot of time with in the beginning of this book, looking at the, the world made round and the straight road and all that stuff, right? But, um, but even before that, even just with the rising of the sun, we've entered into a new time and it, the elves have already started to lessen, right? Once the sun rises, the clock is ticking. The sun is hostile to the elves in some sense. It lessens them. It diminishes them. Um, if they did have a place in Middle-earth, if Middle-earth was where they were supposed to be, if bringing them over to Valinor full-time was a mistake by the Valar, I don't know if, you know, does that mean would they have had a different reaction to the sun? I don't know. I mean, is is this... A, no one will ever know exactly what would have happened had it been totally different, right? Um, but... Uh, but in any case, the story that we get is this is the this is the first stage now um, of that process, and there will be there will be more right and more explanations. Even the very uh, you know the, the 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 curse of the Noldor is also kind of part of it, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay, so just. Uh, that is one thing. And so, and ultimately, do you, you see where this is going to lead us? What state this is going to lead us to? If the sun in middle, if the air of Middle Earth under the sun is becoming, if not exactly hostile to elves, um, but, but at, the, at the very least is lessening them, now the West is becoming their home more and more, right? Um, and in the end, we're working towards the state that we're going to get to at the end of the Numenor story, right? At the end of our sequel, right? Um, and that is separate worlds, the mortal world and the West fairy, which is removed from our world, still connected, right? By this thread, right? By the straight road, but now taken away from our everyday experience and made into a separate thing, which is now distant, almost, almost completely inaccessible and yet not gone. Uh, and still part of our experience and still part of our memory. 
Um, so that's where we're kind of, but this is the first step of that. And he's showing us how this, how this works. But again, it's fascinating to me that he insists upon an actual sort of physical explanation of this and that he makes that progression. So sort of forceful, um, uh, and I just it, it just reminds me of what a central question this is in Tolkien's mythological world. I mean, I would almost go so far as to say it's the question. It's like the whole question that Tolkien's mythology is designed to answer, right? What happened to the elves? Why did they fade? And where did they go and why, right? Okay, that's more than one question, but that issue, right, um, I think is really the central issue of Tolkien's entire mythology. Um, now, more sort of objective metaphysical questions about things like death, the afterlife, and what happens to the souls of elves. Um, This is a fascinating passage. Immortal were the elves, and their wisdom waxed from age to age, and no sickness nor pestilence brought death to them. Yet their bodies were of the stuff of earth and could be destroyed. And in those days they were more like to the bodies of men and to the earth since they had not so long been inhabited by the fire of the spirit which consumeth them from within in the courses of time. Therefore they could perish in the tumults of the world, and stone and water had power over them, and they could be slain with weapons in those days, even by mortal men. And outside Valinor they tasted bitter grief, and some wasted and waned with sorrow until they faded from the earth. Such was the measure of, mo- of their mortality, foretold in the doom of Mandos, spoken in Eremon. But if they were slain or wasted with grief, they died not from the earth, and their spirits went back to the halls of Mandos, and there waited, days or years, even a thousand, according to the will of Mandos and their deserts. Thence they are recalled at length to freedom, either as spirits, taking form according to their own thought, as the lesser folk of the divine race, or else it is said they are at times reborn into their own children, and the ancient wisdom of their race does not perish or grow less. Okay, so much stuff going on here. Um, let's, um, let's, try to, uh, let's, let's try to sort this out. First, the first part of this. The bodies and souls of elves. You see what we learn about the souls and bodies of elves and, and, and about the relationship between the souls and bodies of elves? What are some observations that you guys made uh, about those? What do you think? What jumped out at you? What struck you as especially interesting or significant of the, uh, the, 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 the top? I would say um, down to uh, even by mortal men. Um, great question, Karita. What does it mean that they are of the stuff of earth? Yeah, good. Yet their bodies were of the stuff of earth and could be destroyed. Um, my understanding of that pass of that phrase, Karita, is in contrast with the bodies that the Valar put on. Right, the Valar can't be killed. You can't like if you sneak up behind, you know, Manway and like stab him in the back with a knife. He's not gonna die. You know, he's not gonna like stagger, give a tragic Shakespearean soliloquy, and keel over um, because his body was just a, a thing that he put on. Right, it's not his essential form. He's not bound to it. It's just. It's just a, a like a suit that he's wearing, right? Elves, however, are of the stuff of earth. Their bodies are of the stuff of earth. It's it's 
from dust they are into dust they will return. So uh, just like eventually, right? It'll, it'll take a really long time. Um, so create a really career, really, a really uh, strength. <laughs> A really weird way of, or a sort of simplistic answer, way of answering that question is their their bodies are real, right? I may not might not help, but you see what I mean. Like that's their the, their bodies are made of real stuff. Um, and Yana points out that stuff of Earth makes it sound like the dwarves in some way. Um, yeah, uh, dwarves are like stonier and more iron like, right? Um, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> no, 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 Karita. Not real like the Velveteen Rabbit is real. Uh, <laughs> no, that's real in a totally different sense. Never mind, never mind, never mind. Um, uh, this is this always comes up. I always have a hard time with this because this always this always comes up with um, trying to explain the Astari. Right, and in what sense the Astari are different? Because the Astari are, are are in this weird like middle case. You've got the the Valar and Maiar over here, right? And they have their spirits, but they have physical form. But the relationship between the spirit and the physical form works one way, right? And then you've got the incarnate races over here, right? Like the elves and men, especially, and the relationship between their souls and their bodies work in a different way, right? And then you've got the Astari, who are like kind of like both um and yet exactly like neither one um so um okay 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 um yeah joyce says that uh, uh uh even men are spirits inhabiting dust yes exactly um they are um uh that that basically that there's the body and the soul both of which are parts of that creature right um and they are tied together. And so death means the separation of the two, right? When you when you sunder the soul from the body and they the two go their separate ways, right? That is that is what that is the definition of death, right? Um with men their spirits go we know not whither. Uh with elves their spirits go to Mendos. Um but Karita, going back to the observation that you were making Yet their bodies were of the stuff of earth and could be destroyed, right? So this this means a, they are incarnate and tied to their bodies in diff- in a different way, so that you can destroy their body. Like if you if you stab them or set them on fire or blow them up, their bodies will perish, right? And they can't just reform them, puff, right? Like the Valar presumably could. But also, it means I also take his emphasis here to mean that they're not inviolate. Like if you like if you. I uh, sorry. I, I mentioned Shakespeare, and now I'm all thinking Shakespeare. I'm thinking of the uh, um, uh, uh, the hath not a Jew eyes speech from Shylock in Merchant of Venice, right? If you cut them, they will bleed, right? Um, uh, so that's that. Uh, in other words, one of the questions that I think he's trying to answer here is the question: Okay, when you say elves are immortal, what do you mean? Does that mean immortal in the sense of unkillable? And he's emphasizing emphatically not, right? They are definitely, they, they are immortal. That does not mean they are unkillable. It means that no, they, their wisdom waxes from age to age, i.e. They, they don't die of old age, right? Um, and they don't get sick uh, and die of disease, right? So they, they, they are not subject to that kind of physical wasting away that comes either with sickness or with age, right? 
Um, the, um, so that's the first thing he asserts about them. But then he emphasizes, yet their bodies were of the stuff of... But don't get me wrong, right? Just because their bodies didn't ever fade or decline uh, in that way doesn't mean they're undamageable, right? It doesn't mean they're immune to all hurts. They don't decay of themselves. They don't get sick and wasted away. But if you stab them, they'll bleed. Um, if you decapitate them, they'll die, right? Um, uh, so... That, I think, is what he's, he is emphasizing to clear up because it clears up a potential question about what you mean uh, when you call them immortal, right? And notice how he goes on. And in those days, they were more like to the bodies of men and to the earth. Okay, so back in those days, elves' bodies, they're still presumably of the stuff of earth, but they were more earthy and more like the bodies of men in those days, presumably, than they are now like in the modern era, or at least at the time when Alfwina is translating this, presumably? Or is this... Um, uh, the, the time frame of reference for the phrase in those days, right? Is it Pengalod, right? In Tol Erisea, thinking back to this? Is it Alfwina? Is it Tolkien, the modern translator? Um... If I had to guess, I would go with Alfwina. Uh, but uh, but anyway, in the modern world, right, elves, presumably, their bodies are less now like the bodies of men and less earthy than they were. Okay, how? Why? Uh, because, okay, since they had not so long been inhabited by the fire of their spirit, which consumeth them from within in the courses of time. Really? Okay, so their spirit consumes the body, is what, right? That's the them there, right? Um, the longer an elf lives, the more its spirit consumes its body in some sense, not destroys, presumably, but makes less like the bodies of men, less earthy. I don't know exactly what that refers to exactly. Kimber asks exactly, Kimber, the very sensible question, and the body gets less damageable as the spirit consumes the body. Kimber, that's kind of what it sounds like to me, right? He's saying in those days, you know, uh, you know, killing elves was easy. It's gotten harder over. They're, they're less earthy, right? They're less vulnerable, in that, I think in that way. But of course, you'll notice the other thing that he insists upon here, which was implied before and insisted on explicitly here. When Mando says you will be killed much more, right? He's not just making a prediction. He's not just saying... Uh, in the published Silmarillion, it's perfectly possible to interpret Mando's word when he says, um, but slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be, right? It sounds... I love that line. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole published Silmarillion, but... Um, it sounds like a prediction, right? It sounds like Mando's saying, you people have let yourselves in for a world of hurt, right? And you're going to feel it, boy, let me tell you, right? That's that's always how I sort of, what I heard Mando's is saying there. Not, um, I am cursing you now with a special vulnerability to wounds and death, right? You will be more subject to those things now than you were before. I'm, I am laying that curse upon you now. It, it, it doesn't... It's easy not to read it that way in the published Silmarillion. In the Quentus Silmarillion, 
that's explicitly what it means, and that's emphasized here. Um, uh, Such was the measure of their mortality foretold in the doom of Mandos, spoken in Eremon. Right? That's the measure of mortality that was given to them was increased. Right? Um, uh, so they are actually like if dude because of the curse of Mandos, they are physiologically altered uh, at that point. Um, okay, all right. So they could perish in the tumults of the world. St- uh, stone and water had power. Right? They can drown. They can get crushed. Um, they can be slain with weapons, even by mortal men. That phrase kind of surprises me too. Right? Even by mortal men. I mean, humans could kill them. Imagine that, right? Why would he say it that way? Well, because that very rarely happens in the elf stories that we still have, right? Um, uh, Just ask Sir Gowan how that worked out for him, right? When he chopped off the head of a fairy knight, right? Uh, Turns out his head was sufficiently vulnerable, right, to a huge battle axe, um, but um, it didn't uh, didn't go very far, right? Um, it, you know, of course, I'm talking about Sir Gowan of the Green Knight, and he gets decapitated and picks up his head and walks away, right? Um, I, I think that that kind of story is what's sort of in the background when he emphasizes, even by mortal men, right? Back in those days, yeah, they were way more killable uh, than they have since become. Presumably, again, because of the whole fire of their spirit thing. Um, okay. Okay. <laughs> Tomas says he was one of the green elves for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. Very clearly. Um, uh, interesting, Julie. That's a fascinating connection. Julie Dick says that, uh, that, that phrase, the phrase about the there's fire of their spirit consuming them from within, reminds her of Gandalf's comment about Frodo and Rivendell becoming like a, like a, a clear glass uh, f- from with, uh, uh, w- uh, for light to shine through. Um, Julie, that's, I was not thinking of that at all. Um, but that's really fascinating. Um, and of course, what is it? He, he, Frodo fades too. Right, in a sense, right, in a different way, of course, and in a different measure. But that's um, uh, that's a really great, a very interesting uh, connection, Julie. That's really good. Um, okay. Other thing, and several of you were already commenting on this above, which is great. So, what happens to, when they die? What happens to their souls? And several of you were, as I was, and indeed, as Christopher Tolkien confesses himself to be, kind of blown away by the new thing. Here, this is, there is a legitimately new thing which enters into Tolkien's whole kind of metaphysical setup here in this passage that we've never seen before. And that is this idea that they can, like, kind of graduate, right, from elfdom, Um so their spirits go to Mandos, right, after they die, and they have what sounds like a, no, doesn't sound like, which is explicitly a purgatorial experience in Mandos, right? In you know, the, the, the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, right, says purgatory is the place that you go to be purged, right, to be cleansed uh, of your sins. And so they, their length of stay in Mandos um, is determined, A, by the will of Mandos, and B, by their deserts. That's the purgatorial element, right? So it seems they, uh, they do their time in Mandos, and then they're released from Mandos. And they have a couple options, right, at that point that are open to them. One, they can just hang out as spirits. Just go body free, right? 
in which case they become, they take form according to their own thought. So they can manifest a body if they want to. In fact, they become just like those creatures which will be called the Maiar, right? They become like those lesser spirit, like the followers of the Valar, which kind of sounds like a promotion, right? Um, yeah, but um, that's... Uh, That's kind of that's kind of fascinating, right? Um, that's the this, that's the that's the element there that's totally mind-blowingly new in this passage, right? There was never any sense that the elves could just have the same kind of existence that the Valar and Maiar have. It sounds to me like a. I can. I mean, just thinking back to what we were talking about in the previous slide about the era of Middle Earth, right? Um, that movement towards separation, right? The mortal world over here, and the the undying lands over here. The elves, kind of, uh, you know, moving in with the Valar and becoming more and more like them. That it's almost it's like the ultimate apotheosis of the elves, right? They when they become like unto the Valar. Um, now, notice when he talks about this, he doesn't sound like it's like either a particularly meritorious thing to do that, or that it's a thing that happens to particularly meritorious elves. Um, it's, it's their choice, apparently. They are recalled at length to freedom, either as spirits, um, or else it is said they're at times reborn into their own children. Um, now that is odd, right? Uh, but not new. That's odd, but that's odd in an old hat kind of way. Um, that was way back in the beginning. He's been saying that since the Book of Lost Tales, indeed. The change here is that it's he's he's um, he's backing off from it a little bit. Um, in the Book of Lost Tales, that's what happened to all dead elves. All dead elves went to Mandos and then got reborn in their descendants, right? Um, uh, leading to that situation where you... Uh, you know, which always, which always just struck me as so odd, right? You know, an elvish couple get married and, 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 uh, and have a baby, right? In, in the delivery room, right? That's the little baby elf is born and, you know, the, the elvish midwife picks it up and says, you know, Hey, congratulations. It's grandpa, right? I mean, it's, that's a little weird. Um, uh, it's always hard, a little hard for me to wrap my mind around that. Um, but anyway, it's that's that's it's 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 still there, and it's um, uh, it's it, but it's less than it. Um... <laughs> Nancy, that's awesome. Nancy Fosberg says, and the parents are like, "The baby is your dad." I thought we decided the baby was going to be my dad. Uh, yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, ah <laughs> uh, yeah yeah it's like <laughs> hashtag first comer problems um but anyway uh yeah yeah so um it's 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 sort of an awkward situation but there it is um the but again but now there's this option right now they they can just remain disembodied and it's almost like it sounds like that's the that's their ultimate state, right? That, you know, that we, what this presents us with is an elvish race, which is sort of becoming one with the Valar and the Maiar, right? And really kind of crossing the line, uh, to that, uh, to that side. Um, 
Yeah, and Joyce, I agree. It does. Re- this passage, I think, does suggest that the uh, the choice is the elves is the elves' own. Um, I, I, Joyce, the use of the word freedom there, of course, is what really I think I think suggests it most strongly. Um, hard for me to kind of escape that with the with the, with the actual use of the word freedom there. Um, so okay, so that's kind of interesting. And remember, again, those of you who did the Book of Lost Tales, um, in the Book of Lost Tales, there's a whole kind of um, very sort of Christian afterlife modeled three part afterlife. Like there's a, there's a, there's like an Elvish, a physical Elvish paradise. And there's a, there's, there's the Elvish purgatory and there's the Elvish hell. That's why remember, uh, Angband is called the hells of iron several times. Um, in the initial conception, that was perfectly literal, right? It wasn't just like the word hell was not being thrown out there just as uh, uh, like as a kind of a pejorative, right? Or as a, a piece of hyperbole, right? Um, it was perfectly literal. It was hell in the sense that that's where, that's where the, like the, the naughty people went. The naughty elves went after death. Um, so, um, so, so yeah, that, that's, that concept has that went out relatively soon, but we can we can certainly see that that concept is we still have that purgatorial concept, right? But the idea of uh, of of elvish paradise and elvish hell, especially with the idea of um, Melkor kind of presiding over the elvish hell, is definitely gone. Um, all right, good. More. In after days, when because of the triumph of Morgoth, elves and men became estranged, as he most wished, those of the elf race that still lived in the Middle-earth waned and faded, and men usurped the sunlight. Then the Quendi wandered in the lonelier places of the great lands and the isles, and took to the moonlight and the starlight, and to the woods and caves, becoming as shadows and memories, such as did not ever and an- such as did not ever and anon set sail into the west, and vanished from the earth as is here later told. But in the dawn of years, elves and men were allies and held themselves akin, and there were some among men that learned the wisdom of the Eldar and became great and valiant and renowned among the captains of the gnomes, and in the glory and beauty of the elves and in their fate, full share had the fair offspring of elf and mortal, Aarendel and Elwing and Elrond their child. Okay. First of all, let's make sure that we... um. Uh, let's make sure that we, we clarify the, again, our time frame, our frame, our frame of reference, right? In that first part in after days. Okay. Wait. And after days, meaning like later on in the first age, no, after days clearly means in the modern world, right? Um, elves and men have become estranged, right? They're no longer, they no longer hang out together. Clearly true. Right. Um, Elf, so there are still elves that lived in Middle Earth for a long time. Um, that's why, again, that's why we get stories like Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, right? Um, and and all of the fairy tales and things. The Quendi were still there. How do we know we're talking about after the First Age? How do we know we're not talking about Beleriand here? Uh, it's the Isles, places of the Great Lands, and the Isles. The Isles there, um, I think, almost certainly refers to the islands that are all that's left of Beleriand after the drowning of Beleriand at the end of the First Age after the War of Wrath. Okay, so, okay, so, um, so clearly we're talking about post Elder Days. 
Uh, So in those later times, those later ages, under the dominion of men, the elves were still here. But we don't see them and talk to them anymore. We certainly, humans don't take service with them anymore. Um, And what did the elves do? They took to the moonlight and to the starlight, to the woods and the caves. They become as shadows and memories. And they vanished from the earth, eventually. That is, those of, mo- most of them vanished from the earth by taking ship and, and sailing into the west. But even those that didn't take ship, even those that stayed, become lessened and diminished and, and only become a dim memory and a legend to human beings. So again, you see he's explicitly explaining how did we get to where we are, right? Why does the modern situation exist? But... Back in those days, right? So then we get, but in the dawn of years, this is, seems to be an explicit appeal to our imagination, right? Um, The explicit appeal to uh, say, okay, but, but in the times we're, but don't project backwards the current situation. So when I'm talking about humans and elves um, back in the elder days, don't think about little fairies, right? Don't think about diminished elves, think about, just realize that the elves and men were allies and held themselves akin. We've got the men serving and learn. They are the students and the, the servants and the vassals of the elves, right? That's how things work. Because remember, what's the intended audience of this? Um, it's easy to read Tolkien's work from a post-Tolkien perspective, right? Tolkien did more than anybody else in the 20th century uh, to rehabilitate elves, Right, fairies were very common. Fairies were uh, were were a very very popular piece of English folklore, but they weren't much like Tolkien's elves. Right, Tolkien worked very hard uh, during his writing career to rehabilitate the elves uh, and to reestablish this concept of elves who were like more like medieval elves, more like the elves that you would meet in Sir Orfeo or in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Okay, so. Again, it's easy to kind of take that for granted, but Tolkien wasn't taking that for granted. So when he's talking about elves, um, a bunch of these passages in the Silmarillion are clearly designed to preempt misunderstandings, right? Don't get me wrong. When I say elves, uh, uh, make sure you keep in mind that this is what we're talking about. And Nick, yes, I think that we can see... This, again, was very explicit in the Book of Lost Tales. It's less explicit here. But in the Book of Lost Tales, he was explicitly conceding the fact that the fairies are literally going to become little. That they're going to, when he said, we talks about them diminishing, again, he's not originally being metaphorical. He's being quite literal. That they're going to become small, wee people. He gets away from that pretty soon. And I don't think we can see too much evidence of that concept very clearly remaining in place uh, in, uh, in, in the stuff that we're reading here in this volume. Um, but, uh, but there are still kind of memories of it, and it still kind of fits with a bunch of things that he actually, that he actually says. Um, okay. Um, uh, all right. Oh, yes. And uh, Marie, you're absolutely right. Uh, Elrond really is the linchpin to, and key to all the stories tying the first age to the later ages. Exactly, Marie. That's, that is Elrond's role, right? Elrond plays a very minimal role in the actual stories of the first age. He is the transition, right? He is the bridge between the elder days and the modern world. Um, 
that idea, you know, a fair elf spring of elf and mortal, Arendel and Elwing and Elrond, their child. Um, he is like the physical embodiment of the first age, still present in, uh, you know, still still there and, and bearing with him the memory of the first age. Um, that's that's what he is. That's his job. Um, yeah, yeah. Good, good. Okay. Um, one more metaphysical point. We're so close to being a third of the way through my material here tonight. Um, back to the dwarves and the soullessness of the dwarves. Here's the statement he makes about this in the Quenta Silmarillion. Wherefore, the dwarves are like the orcs in this, that they come of the willfulness of one of the Valar, but they were not made out of malice or mockery, and were not begotten of evil purpose. Yet they derive their thought and being, after their measure, from only one of the powers, whereas elves and men, to whomsoever among the Valar they chiefly turn, have kinship with all in some degree. Therefore, the works of the dwarves have great skill, but small beauty, save where they imitate the arts of the Eldar, and the dwarfs return unto the earth and the stone of the hills of which they were fashioned. Okay, now, in essence, we've, this is a story we've heard before, twice, in fact, in the Annals and in the Lamas, right? Um, so you could say, well, there's nothing exactly new there yet. Oh, by the way, yes, Dime, you're right. Still no Elros, right? Still no Elros. We just have Elrond, their child, right? We don't, we don't, we don't get Elros yet. Um, you know, we talked about that before, right, Dime, that, you know, we, we can see the role that he's going to play, like, we, we, you know, that desire to clone Elrond and put him in two places. We're going to solve that problem with a, with giving him a brother. Right. But, uh, but, but still, still not yet. We still don't have Elros appearing in the text as written yet and not added in later on. Okay. So what do we see? <laughs> so- Sorry, I'm just la- I'm not laughing at you. Uh I am I am I'm this is my my laughter is the spontaneous expression of the uh of the affection that wells up in me when I see uh the passion with which you guys all defend the dwarves just like you were doing before. Uh exact Kimber says time for dwarf defense. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Let's rally the troop to defend Thorin and company. I totally I I I I totally get it. I feel you there. Um well let's just point out the first and most obvious thing. He does not explicitly say here that dwarves don't have souls anymore. Right. Um, so that appears to be out the window and Christopher points uh, points that out, how that seems to have been. You know, he even points out the passage where there was something and it was erased and then stuff was written over it. And Christopher theorizes that it was the, the bit about not having souls. Right. Uh, that Tolkien actually crossed out here and then went back and started to make some corrections to the earlier texts. So he seems at this point now to have ditched the idea of of dwarves not having souls. But what does he do instead? Right? What does he do instead? Um, uh, well, Arthur's pointing out, and uh, it's the same. Uh, Veronica was just asking the same question. Is they go back to stone and don't seem to have any afterlife? And Veronica's saying, well, if they do have stones and they return to the earth, where do their souls go? Oh, we don't know, right? Doesn't say anything about that. 
Um, does that mean, so does uh, returning unto the earth and the stone of the hills of which they were fashioned, does that mean sort of personal annihilation? It's possible. It would be consistent with it. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't say that. Um, it doesn't say that. It doesn't make any speculation as to what, again, it doesn't say they don't have souls, but it doesn't suggest anything about what happens to them afterwards. We don't get that parallel passage with the elves about, you know, what are the options for dwarf souls? We don't, we don't, we don't know about this yet. Um, several of you are pointing out again, as you were before the last time we talked about this, that this is told from an elvish point of view. And, and yes, it, it, it explicitly is right. Pango out of Gondolin, whether this is Pango or whether it's Rumil, uh, or whether it's Pangalod now, you know, editing, or, you know, redacting Rumil's notes or whatever, um, still explicitly written by elves and transmitted from elves to Alfwina, so we're not getting the dwarfish point of view here, and they may tell a different story, but, but, we've got nothing else, right? I mean, there is no evidence. Um, remember, there were... One of the things that's interesting to me about this passage is that it hedges less, right? We don't get any... um. And it is told that, right, those markers that indicate, I'm, uh, I'm telling you what we've heard, but we don't really know, right? It doesn't have that. Um, Therefore, the works of the dwarfs have great skill, but small beauty. This is a fact, and this is what explains that fact, right? And the dwarfs return unto the earth and the stone of the hills of which they were fashioned, period. Now, it has a frame, right? Rumil, Pangalod, Alfwina. So we have that apparatus. We can look at it, and there's still always that opportunity to say, well, what do they know? Right? They're elves. uh, Yes, but we don't know. There's no evidence, right? This passage doesn't suggest that it's guessing, right? That That the author of this is guessing. It states it quite clearly, and we have nothing else to go on. That is to say, think, leave the frame behind for a minute. Think about not Pengalod and Rumil and Alfwina. Think about J.R.R. Tolkien sitting at his desk, okay? J.R.R. Tolkien at his desk has written nothing within the Silmarillion tradition to give us any indication that anything else happens to the dwarves, right? So we can say elvish propaganda all we want. There is no other version. There exists no other version. Um... But notice the change. How is Tolkien's conception of the... How does it seem to be shifting? Away from total soullessness, right? But yet we still have the uh, great skill but small beauty thing. Remember, that was... The soullessness was explaining that before. The great skill but small beauty. Even in the Hlamas, even with their language, right? It was explaining why their language was the way it was. We've got, we know where their language came from because Aule made it up and therefore it's totally different. Um, but their relationship with their language demonstrated their soullessness, remember, in the Hlamas. Here, we still have the thing that used to be tied to the soullessness, but without the soullessness itself. What then, to what does he attribute great skill but small beauty? Good, Marie, that's a great way to, to, to say it. They're... It's, it's just that they're limited to Aule's viewpoint. Yes, exactly. The, el- the dwarves are not mere 
They're not robotic anymore, right? They're not just mechanical contrivances as they used to be, soulless mechanical contrivances. They're not mere mechanical contrivances, but they're narrow, right? They're limited because they're derived entirely from only one of the powers, just as the orcs are derived from only one of the powers. Now, the dwarves are not like... They're like the orcs in that. That's the thing that dwarves and orcs have in common, is that they both derive their being from one Valar. And to push the point one step further, as, as, as our narrator does there at the beginning of the paragraph, they come from the willfulness of one of the Valar. So, uh, so to be perfectly blunt, they come from one of the Valar screwing up and stepping over outside his bounds, right? Aule ended up very differently from Melkor, and thus the dwarves end up different from the orcs, right? But, uh, nevertheless, um, they're derived from, they have the narrow point of view of only one of the Valar, and what's more, they are, the moment of their birth is an act of, is, is itself, in both cases, an act of rebellion. Um, uh, though, again, a, a rebellion sort of with a different context and swiftly repented of in Aule's case. Um, so that's interesting. In other words, one of the things I think you can see, again, thinking about Tolkien at his desk and not thinking about inside the frame, um, from outside the frame, it sort of sounds here like Tolkien is is wanting to change the metaphysics, but he's wanting to stick to the... Uh, the basic idea, right? He doesn't want to leave the great skill but small beauty concept. The dwarves, as he's describing them, are still pretty much the same, but he's changed the metaphysical situation, right? Um, he's explained it now in a different way. Um, while still, as many of you pointed out, uh, leaving completely unanswered the question of, so what happens to dwarves then after they die? Um, are they merely annihilated, or do they have a soul, and does it go somewhere, and what happens with that? Um, we still have no ideas about that. Um, Stepping back one step further from that, even bigger um, conclusion that I would draw, notice that Tolkien's metaphysics, in an even wider sense, not even his metaphysics, his theology, is different here than it will become. Tolkien's world is going to become more orthodox. It's going to become more in line with Catholic orthodoxy. Notice the implications here, as we've been pointing out all along, as we looked at when we were talking about the the origin of orcs, right? In both cases, with orcs and with dwarves, we have one of the Valar, one of the powers who is able to create, right? Um, only Iluvatar will have the power to create. The evil can only mock, it cannot make. We will learn in the Lord of the Rings, right? But we're not there yet. That's not true yet. Um, so that's a shift that we can anticipate. Um, it will be fascinating to watch where and how that happens, right? By the time we get to Frodo in the Two Towers, we're going to be there, right? Um, how does that come about? And why does that come about? That's, to me, a really interesting question, right? Um, uh, so... Yeah, there are several things like that, I think, that we can see about sort of ways in which the, the, the larger question of the frame is, uh, um, is, is still in place and, uh, and going to be changing. Um, uh, Veronica is asking, where is it where it says the dwarves believe that they have uh, halls that are set aside? Um, that's in Appendix A. 
in the uh, the Durin's folk section of Appendix A in the Lord of the Rings, um, but uh, we haven't uh, we haven't heard any rumors about that yet. The halls set apart for them, um, and that Aule is going to care for them after death, maybe, but um, but no hints of it yet. All right, I want to talk about the I'm. Uh, let's see. You know how um, in some places, uh, if you're a sports fan, they like to do that thing where, like, after this point in the game, like, the win expectancy of this particular team is, like, risen to 96%. I think my, uh, my, uh, my, my, my getting through all three of my sections of what I wanted to talk about today, expectancy, has dropped uh, to about 5% now. But that's okay. Uh, I want to I wanna, I wanna get to talking about, as I said before... Um, the question, which I asked very awkwardly, completion percentage. Yeah, there we go, uh, James. So that makes it uh, makes me sound like a quarterback, but that's all right. Um, uh, anyway, the question that I asked very awkwardly before: What is the point of this text? What exactly? How exactly are we supposed to be reading it? Um, let me explain to you what I mean by that question. So, okay, so again, recall briefly what we've gone over before, where we came from, right? We, he, he, he writes the sketch of the mythology in 1930 simply as a plot summary background so that somebody can understand what the heck the Lay of the Children of Hurin is about, right? That's where it starts. He then takes that and he revises and expands it into the Quenta, right? The Quenta Noldorinwa, which again we talked about in the Shaping of Middle-Earth class. And there we see him beginning to kind of settle in and put down roots in this whole plot summary mode, right? He decides to make a thing out of it. Um, and that is now appears to be the primary vehicle of the story. So we're we're not going to do the sequence of inter, of 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 story of sort of short stories set within the frame. That was the original Lost Tales mode, right? So he he's now shifted modes and he's kind of adopted this. No, let's do this whole overview plot summary thing, right? Where we don't get into the nitty gritty of any of the stories, right? We're just telling it, telling sort of the progression of the history in brief. That's what we get in the Quenta. But then something happens. Then he writes the annals. The first version of the annals came after he wrote the Quenta. Right? So he writes the sketch and he revises and develops it into the Quenta. Then he writes the annals. Then he revises the annals. Right? So, and that's like, hey, that's kind of a superior plot summary device, right? Because there you not only get the opportunity to give a really sort of big overview of the events, but you can put them all in order and show the sequence and, and with, you know, much, with, with much more clarity, right? So, so that's kind of cool. So hang on a second. So after now he's developed the Annals of Valinor and Annals of Beleriand, doesn't that kind of make the Quenta obsolete? right? Redundant. He already has a plot summary thing. It's in the annals, right? Um, so what are we going to have? He's, he mentions, right, that, uh, you know, in his prefatory material there, that we have um, these historical records, right? The annals. And we have the stories and songs, right? Then like, you know, things like the Lay of Lathian and the Lay of the Children of Horan, right? These in-depth stories, which tell these particular stories in great detail. Um, so do we need the Quenta anymore? Well, apparently we do, right? He writes, sits down to write the Quenta Silmarillion. So that's what I mean when my question is, what's the point of it, right? We already have the plot summary overview in the annals now. And we have, or presumably we could have, or maybe someday we will have, 
you know, the larger stories, again, from a 1937 perspective, someday, um, we will have the larger stories of the, you know, the, like the Laolathian and, and the way of the children forward and all that stuff, right? So why do we need the Quintus Silmarillion? What's the point of it? What does it do? Why is it there? How does it relate to the poems and songs on the one hand and the annals on the other hand, right? Um, so here's my question that I want for us to answer then. What what is the Quintus Silmarillion trying to do? How is it positioning itself in the middle of all of these materials? How is it asking to be read? What kind of a story is it exactly? So let's look at what we observe. Let's look at observations that we can make. Look at the evidence that we can adduce from the tone and register of the story. And here I want to do some comparisons. But let me give you, uh, this is an example. This is a passage that really jumped out at me. Um, and I want to play a game with you. Um, here's, uh, here's the game I want to play. There is one word in this passage which I found really revealing. One word in this passage which jumped out at me and, and like changed my, my, my whole, like, was to me like the dead giveaway about this passage, right? That, that puts this moment in a different place than we saw the Quenta being in and puts it in a different place than the annals are. Okay, can you guess which word in this passage is to me that like was like the telltale word? Okay, here, listen. Maedros, the chief of Feanor's sons, did deeds of surpassing valor, and the orcs could not endure the light of his face. For since his torment upon Thangarodrim, his spirit burned like a white fire within, and he was as one that returneth from the dead, keen and terrible, and they fled before him. Any guesses? <laughs> oh, very good. Three of you got it right away. Four of you got it right away. Excellent. Excellent. Um, um, Carita, white isn't it, but that's a good one. Actually, I really like that one. Like a white fire within. In the pure pot summary mode, right, he may well just say a spirit burned like a fire, right? Um, her spirit burned like fire. That's that's like the kind of thing that he might have said in the Quenta Noldorinwa, right? So I agree with you that burned like a white fire within is um, is it's that that that's a different kind of thing, and 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 I, I think that that's true. But uh, but uh, Nick Marazzo, James Lieback, Josiah McCoy, and Alyssa House Thomas uh, uh, got it. The word is returneth. He was as one that returneth from the dead, keen and terrible. Um, and the reason it jumped out at me very is grammatical. It's the eth ending. It's the archaic ending of that verb. It's not unprecedented. Indeed, we had one earlier on. Um, uh, where was it? Um, it was in one of the metaphysical passages, of course, because those are the only ones we had, uh, that we talked about. I'm forgetting which one it was, and I'm not going to be able to find it. Never mind. Um, anyway, we did get one eth ending. Uh, in those. But that's the word which changes things. As James Lieback says, it takes the whole passages, passage and puts it into a different register. Um, absolutely it does. And the thing that really, um, that to me made it uh, um, uh, sort of especially fascinating, in the published Silmarillion, it's modernized. This passage is there almost word for word, 
in the published Silmarillion. But the published Silmarillion says, and he was as one that returns from the dead, keen and terrible. Um, it takes out the ETH. But it's the ETH. It's the, the, the I was going to say regression, but that, uh, that sounds potentially pejorative, which of course I don't mean at all. Um, the, the particular rhetorical mode that this it's not just that there's more description and again a creator that's what i like about your guess with the the word white is really powerful in that way right it's not just that we're getting more description it's that we're ad- he's adopting a different register sometimes you may remember we talked about this uh, a bit when we were looking at the quenta in the shaping of middle earth class there are moments when he indulges in description right and it gets more descriptive and more poetic Right. That kind of sneaks in in places in the Quenta and it sneaks in more and more as the Quenta moves along. He kind of can't help himself. Um, but they're still relatively rare. It's still very clearly a sort of a, a much more plot summary mode. Nick, yes. Nick says it's there's an elevation of rhetoric here. Exactly. Exactly. Um, uh, even think of just the rhythm of this. Maedros, the chief of Feanor's sons, did deeds of surpassing valor, and the orcs could not endure the light of his face, for since his torment upon Thangarodrum, his spirit burned like a white fire within, and he was as one that returneth from the dead, keen and terrible, and they fled before him. This is a passage which is extremely sensitive to the sound of the words. Do you hear the rhythm of that? Hear how steady and and uh, uh, and and sort of escalating the rhythm is like as it as it rolls along uh in that way in the way the clauses are strung together um notice also again um uh Carita again which is why i think it's not only your good sense but your ear that makes white fire i'm liking your guess more and more as i think about it more but did you hear how that stands out listen to the to the to the to the rhythm again for, uh, let's see, and the orcs could not endure the light of his face, for since his torment upon Thangarodrum, his spirit burned like a white fire within, and he was as one that returneth from the dead. Hear that? White fire. Hear how that, you just bang on that, right? Um, with those two short words in the middle there. It's really, really neat. Um, and he was as one that returneth from the dead. Now, let's replace that with the modern term as it is in the published Silmarillion. His spirit burned like a white fire within, and he was as one that returns from the dead. Notice the change? It changes not only the register, right? But it changes the rhythm as well, right? Um, if you just have returns, it really lays emphasis on that, right? Um, and it's, it's in the original uh, in the original sentence, we don't want to sit down on the word returns, right? We want to get straight from white fire to keen and terrible, right? The K and the T there, right? Those explosive words at the end, white fire within, and he was as one that returneth from the dead, keen and terrible, right? Notice how that crescendos up to keen and terrible, but if you just make it returns, you don't get that, right? White fire within, and he was as one that returns from the dead, keen and terrible. It's still got rhythm. It's still fine, right? But it's not the same. Um, 
this is this is a much much more carefully rhetorical dramatically rhetorical um uh uh mary you're right it does sound like something one would hear a bard sing it has very much that kind of rhythm um in short we're not exactly in plot summary mode anymore right he departs from plot summary mode and gets into this kind of storytelling register much much more right it's almost like he now indulges himself more in the Quinta Silmarillion than he did back in the Quinta Noldorinwa, because now the pure plot summary job has been done by the annals, right? Now we're getting a little bit more meat on the bones, right? Well, thinking of the meat and the flesh and bones metaphor we were looking at back in the Lost Road, I probably shouldn't use that. But um, but anyway, it's... Um, it's, it's um, this story seems to me to be playing a different function, right? To be playing a different role. Um, it's still overview, right? Still giving an overview story. It's not telling us nearly as much detail as we get in the Lay of Lathian, as we get in the Lay of the Children of Hurin. Um, but it is much more of a transitional thing. We do have two, those two worlds coming together, the, the, oh, this, the, these two literary modes coming together. Right, that plot summary mode that this, that you know that that, that the Quenta Silmarillion is sort of the heir of, and that epic mode, um, uh, that the uh, the you know that that high rhetorical mode that the the epic poems were occupying, and the Silmar the the the, the, the new Quenta Silmarillion appears to be doing both, not all the time and not all to the same extent. Um, but it happens. It, it, he, he brings it in. Let's look at a few more examples. Okay, this is from this is from the old Quenta. This is from volume four. This is from the Quenta Noldorinwa. Long had Morgoth prepared his forces in secret. On a time of night at winter he let forth great rivers of flame that poured over all the plain before the mountains of iron, and burned it to a desolate waste. Many of the gnomes of Finrod's sons perished in that burning, and the fumes of it wrought darkness and confusion among the foes of Morgoth. In the train of the fire came the black armies of the orcs, in numbers such as the gnomes had never before seen or imagined. In this way Morgoth broke the leaguer of Angband, and slew by the hands of the orcs a great slaughter of the bravest of the besieging hosts. His enemies were scattered far and wide, gnomes, ilkarins, and men. Okay, now, that's pretty good, right? Uh, you know, I mean, that's, um, that's okay. It's, it's, um, it's got some nice rhythm to it, right? There's some, you notice it's, it's, it's not totally lacking in poetic force. We get some good phrases like burned it to a desolate waste. He says a little bit more there than he absolutely needs to say, right? Uh, the fumes of it wrought darkness and confusion among the foes of Morgoth. That's pretty good, right? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, in the train of the fire came the black armies of the orcs in numbers such as the gnomes had never before seen or imagined. That, that sentence has got a good rhythm, right? Um, but we're still pretty overviewy, right? We're not really getting it. Now look at, uh, look at the Quentin Silmarillion version. There came a time of winter when night was dark and without moon. And the wide plain of Bladorian stretched dim beneath the cold stars from the hill forts of the gnomes to the feet of Thangorodrim. The watchfires burned low, and the guards were few, and on the plain few were waking in the camps of the horsemen of Hithlam. 
Then suddenly Morgoth sent forth great rivers of flame that poured, swifter than the cavalry of the Balrogs, over the plain, and the mountains of iron belched forth fires of many colors, and the fumes stank upon the air and was deadly. Thus Bladorian perished, and fire devoured its grasses, and it became a burned and desolate waste, full of a choking dust, barren and lifeless, and its name was changed, and ever after it was called the Land of Thirst, Dorna Fauglith in the Gnomish tongue. Right? How about that? See the difference? Uh, as Marie says, now that is a story, right? Absolutely. And Kimber says, paint me a picture, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, uh, notice how he abandons here. Now, you know, before in the Quinta, in the Quinta Noldorinwa, we got moments where he was indulging in poetic phrases or descriptions, right, that weren't totally necessary to the plot summary. But we never had him just abandon the plot summary register entirely, and that's what happens in this paragraph, right? Briefly, we sort of take time out to the overview, right? And we come right into ground level. There came a time of winter when night was dark and without moon. Okay, that's still kind of overview-ish, maybe, right? But then as soon as the watchfires burned low and the guards were few and on the plain few were waking in the camps of the horsemen of Hithlam, we're, we're really getting there... Uh, their close-in personal experience, right? There's really nothing like that. Good, Marie says this is an epic tale meant to draw you in. Um, yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Um, it's 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 more rhythmic, Michael Ch- Ch- Michael Cheskovsky, uh, and Michael. I think I will always stutter when I say your name. Um, I've always, since I was a kid, had a speech impediment. Um, and there are some like consonantal combinations that tie my tongue in knots. And for some reason, uh, your last name, Cheskovsky, does it to me. It's the CH at the beginning that gets me every time. Um, so anyway, just trying to excuse myself for screwing up your name every single time I've ever tried to say it. Um, uh, very good. Very good. Um, okay, so... Uh, so anyway, but anyway, Michael was saying that the rhythm reminds him of Galadriel's song. Um, yes, there is a, a, a poetic rhythm here. Um, the watchfires burned low, and the guards were few, and on the plain few were waking in the camps of the horsemen of Hithlam. Then suddenly Morgoth sent forth great rivers of flame that poured swifter than the cavalry of the Balrogs over the plain. Um, uh, uh, who was commenting on that with the Balrogs? Arthur, uh, the cavalry of the Balrogs. Uh, no, the Balrogs don't have an air force. Arthur, they uh, they apparent they are serving as as cavalry. By the way, um, I um, I think this I believe him to be using metaphorically. I don't think that he means they're literally riding horses. The Balrogs. Um, I think he's using a metaphor like the orcs are as the infantry and the Balrogs are as the cavalry because they are much heavier troops and heavier, faster, and more mobile troops um, because they're bigger and can run really fast. Um, so, yeah, so I, I don't think it's literal. I, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor. Though it's an unusual kind of metaphor in that he rarely uses that kind of modern military concept um, as, uh, as, uh, as, as a metaphor. But anyway, um, so you can, you can, you can see, right? You can see and, 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 and feel and hear the difference there between how he's, um, how he's introducing this story, this, this indulgence, not just in metaphor, not just in imagery, not just in description, um, but in, in the register of the story, 
um, in uh, at Mary, again, at Mary, as you were saying, the way that this is a story that is now meant to draw you in. Um, yeah, Kelly says it's making you feel like you were there. There's I, g- reducing the distance. Uh, Kelly, that's exactly how I always think, but I always want to say things like coming in close or sort of swooping down to ground level. Um, it is that, that, that closeness. Um, we, as listeners to this story, are now brought to imagine waking up in the camps of the Watchers uh, uh, in Bladorian at, and to suddenly see the wall of fire racing across the plain, uh, you know, consuming all before it, uh, you know, and that the fear and the terror of that moment. That's what we're being invited to imagine. And again, that's a totally different thing than we got. Uh, nice as the passage is in the, uh, in, in the Quenta Noldorinwa, we just, it's not designed for, to give us that kind of experience. Um, the other one, of course, uh, which, especially after we were kind of ripping this up in the annals, uh, you will uh, be not surprised that I want to talk about Fingolfin's death. Um, here's the Quenta version, the older version of Fingolfin's death. High Morgoth towered above the head of Fingolfin, but great was the heart of the gnome, bitter his despair and terrible his wrath. Long they fought. Thrice was Fingolfin beaten to his knees and thrice arose. Ringle was his sword, as cold its blade and as bright as the blue ice, and on his shield was the star on a blue field that was his device. But Morgoth's shield was black without a blazon, and its shadow was like a thundercloud. He fought with a mace like a great hammer of his forges. Grand, the orcs called it, and when it smote the earth as Fingolfin slipped aside, a pit yawned and smoke came forth. Thus was Fingolfin overcome, for the earth was broken about his feet, and he tripped and fell, and Morgoth put his foot, that is heavy as the roots of hills, upon his neck. But this was not done before Ringo had given him seven wounds, and at each he had cried aloud. He goes halt in his left foot forever, where, in his last despair, Fingolfin pierced it through and pinned it to the earth." Okay, that's pretty good, right? Again, I, I'm not trying to complain, right? If this is all we had, it would still be awesome. Um, it's not that it's... It's not like that passage in the annals that we were looking at, right? Where it was like the story of Fingolfin with all of the awesomeness sucked out of it, right? Uh, only the barest, briefest memories of awesomeness left in that account. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, it's... it's um, there is definitely awesomeness here. But notice how it keeps shifting register. It keeps shifting position. Kelly, thinking of your observation just recently, it keeps distancing us from that moment, right? There are times when we're in there close, right? And we're getting this visual description, and uh, which is really, which is really great. Like, uh, uh, and when it smote the earth as Fingolfin slipped aside, a pit yawned and smoke came forth. Think about not only the the, the image of the pit yawning and smoke coming forth, which is really good, um, but think also of the the the, the visual imagery associated uh, with uh, uh, first the the choice of the verb smote. Right when it smote the earth, so you can imagine, you can you know you you can picture the great mace, the hammer of the underworld, uh, coming and striking, you know, grand, uh, uh, striking down into the earth to make this crater. And Fingolfin, the ver- so the verb smote and the verb slipped in that sentence, right? Both of them convey. Uh, something pretty cool to our imagination, right? We can imagine the the, the overpowering force of Morgoth's blow and the uh, the the sort of you know the 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 
agility of the elf lord as he, you know, small though undaunted, slips. You know, he doesn't dodge, he doesn't leap, he slips aside, right? Um, but eventually is going to get caught. So, okay, so we get those moments, right, where we are... It's almost like we're there, and we're, we're, we're being invited to picture it, we're being invited to see it, but... But notice how it keeps pushing us back, too, right? Even... Okay, like, thrice was Fingolfin beaten to his knees, and thrice arose. Okay, man, this is... This is intense, right? But notice, after that, Ringo was his sword, as cold its blade and as bright as the blue ice. And on his shield was a star... Like, we interrupt this battle to tell you about the heraldry of the two combatants, right? And it really does distance us. Ringo, by the way, his sword was named Ringo, right? And this is what it what it looked like and what his shield was like. Um... But then, okay, anyway, then we get back to the mace and the smiting the earth and the pit yawning and smoke coming forth. And then, thus was Fingolfin overcome. For the earth was broken about his feet, and he tripped and fell, and Morgoth put his foot upon his neck. Once again, we're back there, right? Now we're close again, and we're picturing, oh no, there's Morgoth with his foot on his neck. But this was not done before Ringo had given him seven wounds. Note the distance again. We're not there in the moment. He's like, but anyway, previous to that, he'd already given him seven wounds. Notice how that disrupts the flow of the narrative, right? Um, uh, and he had cried aloud before. We're not shown Morgoth actually crying aloud. We're just told that, you know, a few minutes ago he had been crying aloud. Again, see the difference? See the difference in pace? We're not blow by blow there in the battle. Also, although we do get um, some good rhythm here, right? Um, including some some of the sort of classic Tolkien uh, variation of, of cadence of his sentences, right? Um, high, towered, high Morgoth towered above the head of Fingolfin, but great was the heart of the gnome, bitter his despair, and terrible his wrath. A gorgeously balanced sentence, right? Gorgeously parallel, right? And then long they fought. So we have this little sentence by itself to serve as a kind of a pivot, right? between High Morgoth towered above him and thrice was Fingolfin beaten to his knees and thrice arose. Again, you see the balance, right, of the structure of that sentence with long they fought in the middle. And notice that long they fought is just like, is uh, is the same length as each of the parallel bits of the other sentences. So we get great was the heart of the gnome, bitter his despair, terrible his wrath, long they fought, Thrice was Fingolfin beaten to his knees, and thrice arose. Right, so we get we get that the anyway. It's cool. So there's there's cool stuff going on there. No doubt, this is great. Um, but let's uh, let's ratchet up the awesomeness, shall we? So here we go in the Quintus Silmarillion version, and he issued forth clad in black armor, and he stood before the king like a tower, iron-crowned, and his vast shield, sable unblazoned, cast a shadow over him like a storm-cloud. But Fingolfin gleamed beneath it like a star, for his mail was overlaid with silver, and his blue shield was set with crystals, and he drew his sword, Ringil, and it glittered like ice, cold and gray and deadly. Notice how in that paragraph we get the same heraldic observations, we, the name of his sword, what it looks like, what's on Fingolfin's shield, what's on Morgoth's shield, right? We get all that stuff. But we don't interrupt the narrative for it. We're not like, and we now interrupt this fight to tell you about their heraldry, right? It's all worked in. In fact, it becomes part of, the, of, of, of our closeness. It doesn't introduce distance, right? It helps us to imagine more because the black 
unblazoned shield, the sable unblazoned shield uh, of Morgoth is, uh, is, is casting a shadow over him like a storm cloud, right? So we actually, it helps us to picture it. Anyway, okay. Then Morgoth hurled aloft as a mace, Grond, the hammer of the underworld, and swung it down like a bolt of thunder. But Fingolfin sprang aside, and Grond rent a mighty pit in the earth, whence smoke and fire darted. Many times Morgoth essayed to smite him, and each time Fingolfin leaped away, as a lightning shoots from under a dark cloud, and he wounded Morgoth with seven wounds, and seven times Morgoth gave a cry of anguish, whereat the rocks shivered, and the hosts of Angband fell upon their faces in dismay. But at last the king grew weary, and Morgoth bore down his shield upon him. Thrice was he crushed to his knees, and thrice rose again, and bore up his broken shield and stricken helm. But the earth was all rent and pitted about him, and he stumbled and fell backward before the feet of Morgoth. And Morgoth set his foot upon his neck, and the weight of it was like a fallen hill. Yet with his last and desperate stroke, Fingolfin hewed the foot with Ringil, and the blood gushed forth, black and smoking, and filled the pits of Grond. Okay, see the difference? We never are pulled back from this at all, right? Never does the narrator assert distance until the fight's over. And uh, and even when it does pull back, which is right after this, the sentence where I ended it, Notice the moment that it pulls us back is the moment of Fingolfin's death. Fingolfin is going to get crushed to death by Morgoth under his foot, but we don't end with the death of Fingolfin itself, right? We don't get, um, um, we don't get, our experience of being there and of being drawn into this doesn't lead up to the death. It ends with the sort of last moment of Fingolfin's triumph, right? With the blood gushing forth um, from the last uh, and mightiest blow that Fingolfin lands upon him, right? Um, So this is like quantitatively more awesomeness. Notice even things like similes, he he says, introducing it with the word like. Um, We don't get that, right? Uh, Over him like a storm cloud. It glittered like ice, um, uh, 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 anyway, we, we get several of those, uh, several of those kinds of similes, um, which again, it just, the imagery is, is much more, uh, much more palpable. We're drawn in much, much more. Um, okay. Yeah. I, and Carson, I will admit my 245% increase in awesomeness that I have attributed to this is, uh, it's a bit of a, a guesstimate. Uh, I will say I, I could be corrected, I suppose. Um, but um, like light, like lightning under a cloud, James. Yes, that's that's the other one I was searching for. Thank you. Um, so again, the, the, I, I hope that these passages that I've chose help to show what I mean about this change in register. Right. This is. Um, but now, of course, we have another thing here. Right. As Christopher Tolkien points out in his commentary. Um, a lot of this story and a lot of the imagery, even the similes themselves, are drawn from the Lay of Lathian, right? Uh, and Christopher Tolkien points out that this is from Canto 12 of the Lay of Lathian, in other words, one of the very last cantos to be written um, of the Lay of Lathian, and therefore one which was actually written after the Quentin Olderinwa was written. So when he did that previous version, he hadn't written out the version. Uh, in the Lay of Lathian yet, the full epic poem version of this poem. So, when he comes back to it this time, 
it's like, well, now he's got the poetic version to work in, right? So he has all this, uh, this extra, um, uh, this ex, this extra poetic, uh, um, uh, awesomeness, right. That he's got floating around here. But that's, that's exactly what's significant, right? That is to me exactly what shows, that's why I would point to this passage as the one which most clearly illustrates what seems to me to be the point of the Quintus Homer, the answer to the question that I was asking before. Um, this is... One way of saying it. This passage does not sound to me like it is being written by someone who has immediate plans to publish the Lay of Lathian, right? If he were, um, if the Silmarillion that he were in the middle of preparing for publication included, as it could conceivably, the Annals, the uh, so the Annals, the Ainulindale, the Hlamas, the Lay of Lathian, the Lay of the Children of Hurin, you know, finished versions of the other poems, that would be uh, one approach, right? We don't really need, as I said, we don't really need the Quintus Silmarillion. We've got the overview in the annals, right? And the way that he lays it out, it sounds like what survived, right? The the texts that survived from the Elder Days were the histories, the annals that were kept by the elves and, um, and the poems, right? The songs that survived. So in some ways, that would make more sense. It would make more sense to include, just include the Laolathian, uh, along with the annals in our imaginary published Silmarillion here in the, you know, 1937 published Silmarillion. Um, and, you know, brush up the way of children of Horton and, um, and finish the other one. And by the way, finish those. We'd have to, we'd have, have to finish a whole bunch of things in order to get there. And it'd be really, really long, but Hey, you know, it's okay. Um, that would seem to be an approach. Instead, what we're getting is a lot of a lot of the awesomeness of the poems instead transferred here. Um, this, the Quintus Silmarillion, is sounding like it's something that's meant to be a genuine alternative to the poems. It's still not as cool as the poems. It still doesn't have everything, but the Quentin Olderinwa, as it stood, could not be a substitute for the poems. It could only supplement, Right. But now, it seems, perhaps, in this new vision of the Silmarillion, he's leaving the poems behind. Not totally, not totally ditching them. Um, He'll still allude to them. But the published Silmarillion does not seem intending to include them at all. It doesn't make the poem unnecessary, but it establishes this new middle ground. It It carves out this new niche for the Quenta as this middle ground, something which accomplishes the more powerful storytelling uh, and the greater detail that the poems gave us while still being something that could be manageable and like of publishable length rather than, you know, something that would have to be published in five volumes or something. Um, and Kimber, this, it's a really interesting question. Kimber says, so, so is he here no longer presenting the ancient text as received, but maybe his own literature based upon it, blending it all into a great story? It's, it is a great question because it does open the question. Well, okay, so then what, you know, what is this then? What is the fictional frame of this text supposed to be? Um, because, um, again, the, other version, right, annals plus poems, 
makes a little bit more sense as surviving texts, right? You can totally see the elves writing down the epic poems that tell the stories. You can totally see them keeping something like the annals. Them deciding to do a kind of a middle ground mishmash between the two of those is, is a little bit harder to imagine, right? As being something that kind of organically happened, right? For this to be a genre that they just kind of decided. Um, I, um, I don't know. Well, I mean, we know for a fact he's not dropped it totally, right? The title pages that came at the beginning show that this is still part of the, the frame of what Alfwina got from Tolerasea and brings back. But also remember the notes that Christopher Tolkien has been pointing to. Remember Christopher Tolkien's explanation in the commentaries in this section about the um, quoth Pengalod stuff that we've been getting in the those those marginal notes that Tolkien penciled in. Christopher believes at the time of composition, giving attributions of particular passages to Pengalod of Gondolin, and Christopher was pointing out that this is. That's kind of odd, right? I mean, the, the title page suggests the whole thing is Pengalod's work. So why is it that we're getting these, you know, footnotes and marginal notes saying, um, oh, um, that was a thing that Pengalod added, right? It would seem to suggest, as Christopher says, that the concept of the frame is shifting, though it's not perfectly clear how it's shifting. Um, myself, Kimber, what I sort of su- suspect here is that if I had to guess, I don't think, Kimber, he's dropping it. I don't think he's going to drop it. But he could be shifting it. Keep in mind, this is a total guess on very little evidence. But my guess is that it's more Alfwina. Remember the uh, revised title page? Um... Remember how there were several title pages? One of the title pages said that this was the work of Pengalot of Gondolin. Um, the other was emphasizing Alfwina's role and emphasizing in particular that Alfwina heard this stuff and memorized a whole bunch of it. Um, but a lot of it he wrote out himself afterwards based on what he heard. Um, and he wrote it out in, in, in English, that is, in Anglo-Saxon. Um... I'm wondering if maybe the shift, my theory, my guess, frankly, let's call a spade a spade, my guess is that maybe what Tolkien was doing was shifting the idea so that things like the Annals were things that he either wrote in Tol Arisea or memorized in Tol Arisea. Because um, that kind of overview of what, what's there in the Annals is something that would be much easier to memorize. And this is Alfwina telling the story as he heard these stories told. So this is why we're getting this middle ground text, the, the, the coming together of the two worlds. On the one hand, he's got the overview of the story and he's trying to tell the overview of the story, but he also heard the poems, right? So he's heard the Lay of Lathian, right? The elves sang it to him um, and he's retelling it. So it sounds a lot like the poems and it, and it worked, but it's, but, but this is Alfwina telling it in a, in epic mode. Again, I have no authority for this. Please don't mistake this for me saying this is totally what Tolkien was doing. No idea. But that's my guess. Um, and that would fit with... Uh, that would explain the quoth Pengalod bit because that would basically be Alfwina emphasizing this bit is something that I'm getting straight from Pengalod. Like, this is a bit that... This, this, this is a thing I memorized that Pengalod actually said, right? And the rest of it is me retelling, right? 
uh, and recounting what I heard. Um, Kimber points out that Alfwina and Tolkien sure have a lot in common. Yeah, don't they though? Yeah, it's uh, it's so true. Kind of like uh, Kimber, kind of like uh, Tolkien and Alboin have really a lot in common, right? And oh wait, Alboin's name is Alfwina, right? So we gotta kind of go, and there we are in a circle again, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, one more, and I'll leave this as a as a as a transition. One more because this is a this is a different kind of uh, of shift in, in in story. We've been talking about sort of rhetorical register. Uh, we've been talking about uh, sort of proximity to the action and things like that. Look at this one. This is the Quenta again, the old Quenta. Then Finweg the Valiant resolved to heal the feud. Alone he went in search of Maedros. Aided by the very mists of Morgoth and by the withdrawal of the forces of Angband, he ventured into the fastness of his enemies, and at last he found Maedros hanging in torment. But he could not reach him to release him, and Maedros begged him to shoot him with his bow. Okay, okay. Um... Good story, right? Very overview, though, right? We get very, very little, even poetic indulgence here, right? Um, the Mists of Morgoth got some poetic description earlier on in the Quentin Nolderenwa, but this is very, yeah, very bare bones, Marie, definitely. Um, by the way, the, the one thing that we, he does expand on, the longest bit of this, this bit gets sort of short shrift here in the Quenta, the bit about uh, calling to the to the to Manway, to whom all birds are dear, and Manway and the eagles and all that stuff. That stuff is given a paragraph at least this long um, afterwards. So we get a we get a much fuller um, emphasis on Manway's role and Manway hearing them and all that kind of thing. Um, but uh, but yeah, but the description of Finweg and what he does, pretty bare bones. Quintus Silmarillion version. Then Fingon the Valiant resolved to heal the feud. Of all the children of Finway, he is justly most renowned, for his valor was as a fire, and yet as steadfast as the hills of stone. Wise he was, and skilled in voice and hand. Troth and justice he loved, and bore good will to all, both elves and men, hating Morgoth only. He sought not his own, neither power nor glory, and death was his reward." Alone now, without counsel of any, he went in search of Maedros, for the thought of his torment troubled his heart. Aided by the very mists that Morgoth put abroad, he ventured unseen into the fastness of his enemies. High upon the shoulders of Thangarodrim he climbed, and looked in despair upon the desolation of the land. But nor passage nor crevice could he find through which he might come within Morgoth's stronghold. Therefore, in defiance of the orcs, who cowered still in the dark vaults beneath the earth, he took his harp, and played a fair song of Valinor that the gnomes had made of old, ere strife was born among the sins, sons excuse me, <clears throat> ere strife was born among the sons of Finway, and his voice, strong and sweet, rang in the mournful hollows that had never heard aught that had never heard before aught save cries of fear and woe. Okay, apart from the fact that I totally butchered the end of that. Um, yeah, Marie says, because one must always bring one's harp on a rescue mission. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're Fingen, obviously, right? Mary, isn't that description of Fingen awesome? I mean, wow, wow. The published Silmarillion totally pulls away from Fingen, 
right? Fingen is one of the least, in the published Silmarillion, I always thought, Fingen was the least developed of all of his generation. Right? I mean, apart from the ones who barely get mentioned. Except, but I mean, like, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got Fingen, and you've got Turgon, and you've got Finrod, right? And you've got Mithros, and you've, you know, but Fingen is always the, although he like becomes high king and he's supposed to be super awesome, we don't ever really know much about his character and what's he like. And, and you know, we never really meet him exactly. He does still get this one great deed. Um, but, uh, but we don't, but here in the, uh, in the, 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 the Quintus Silmarillion, we get the most about Fingen that we ever get. Yeah. Good. Marie. Marie says we, he's called Fingen the valiant, um, but we never really like, we never really get the value. Like, I mean, it's never really explained to us exactly what makes him valiant. That description is so amazing. Um, wise he was and skilled in voice and hand, troth and justice he loved and bore goodwill to all, both elves and men hating Morgoth only. He sought not his own, neither power nor glory, and death was his reward. What an ending to that sentence. And death was his reward. Um, also, Notice, um, notice that, um, uh, uh, lost my train of thought. What were you supposed to notice? You were supposed to, oh yes, okay, okay, got it. Notice that his motivation for helping Mithros doesn't, is purely altruistic here. In the published Silmarillion, remember, Fingon and Mithros were friends back in Valinor. And Mithros himself remembered the friendship and asked his dad, hey, can we go back for Fingon, right, before they burn the ships? Um, that is, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a promotion for Mithros, right? And it's one of the reasons why I always loved Mithros. Uh, uh, you know, in my early days of reading the Silmarillion, I, I totally would have listed Mithros as one of my three favorite characters. I liked that. I like Mithros. Um, um, but anyway, I... Without it, it's even more powerful, right? Fingen is motivated by nothing other than his pity for Mithros' suffering. Um, for the thought of his torment troubled his heart. Fingen has so much compassion, even for his enemy, even for the son of the guy that abandoned him and all of their people to die in the north and who caused who necessitated the crossing of the Helcaraxa and is responsible for the death of all these people. Yet that guy, um, Fingen, alone of his people, steps out and breaches the divide. Right? It's amazing. This is really, really great. So the, the stuff that we get about Fingen's character, really, really cool. Again, notice, even though it's a different kind of we're not in that, uh, you know, sort of epic battle description kind of register. When you know the 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 rhetoric of the passage is different, but notice that it still is very elaborate. Elaborate in a different way, sounds very different. But again, notice the the balance and how that sentence runs along. I mean, notice this is uh, of all the children of Finway, right? That sentence ends all the way down here at and death was his reward, right? That's all one long and very elegant sentence describing Fingen uh, and his character. So it's what, one, two, three, four, five, six? Well, five lines, basically. Uh, long, that's a... It's really impressive. Um, uh, then the 
then again notice how close we are to the narrative right high upon the shoulders of Thangarodrum he climbed and looked in despair upon the desolation of the land but nor passage nor crevice could he find through which he might come by the way that first nor in that sentence um, works a lot like returneth right another one of those sort of extravagantly rhetorical turns of phrase which puts us right our shows that we're right out of the uh the pure plot summary mode right um uh but nor passage nor crevice could he find that's uh, a very archaic uh way of of describing that like returneth right um, therefore, in defiance of the orcs who cowered still in the dark vaults beneath the earth, he took his harp and played a fair song of Valinor that the gnomes had made of old, ere strife was born among the sons of Finway, and his voice, strong and sweet, rang in the mournful hollows that had never heard before aught save cries of fear and woe. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I love the rhythm of that last sentence, which I butchered so horribly the first time I read it. Um, notice how long that last sentence is, too, right? Um, how the sentence itself kind of drags out, but the length of those sentences are, are very... seem very intentional, right? Seem very meaningful. Um, the length of the first sentence, the long set of elegantly balanced phrases going on and on just he is so it takes a really long time to tell you all of the ways in which Fingen is awesome right and all of the different elements of his awesomeness right all balanced together into this one uh, uh, complicated but composite whole right um, in this last sentence we have uh, it starts with action Therefore, in defiance of the orcs, who cowered still in the dark vaults beneath the earth, he took his harp and played a fair song of Valinor that the gnomes had made of old. Right? That, so we get this balanced action, right? We get the description of the orcs cowering in the dark vaults beneath the earth, and balanced against that, uh, the image of Fingon defiantly playing on his harp a fair song of Valinor, uh, recalling, of course, the light of the trees. So we have the, the, the light and music of Fingon against the dark cowering of the orcs, his courage and fearlessness and defiance against uh, their, uh, their, you know, cowardice. Um, but then, it, but it keeps going, right? It would be, it would be a great sentence if it ended there, right? Uh, and played a fair song of Valinor that the gnomes had made of old. But it goes on. Ere strife was born among the sons of Finway, and his voice, strong and sweet, rang in the mournful hollows that had never heard before aught save cries of fear and woe. I keep screwing up that last sentence because I want to say it like I would normally say it in prose, right? That had never, that had never before heard aught is how I keep wanting to say it, but that's not how it goes, right? We have an inversion of that of that phrase from, from the normal, uh, the, the normal mode. You normally put the adverb before the verb, right? Um, he had never before heard. Um, but we have this inversion instead, had never heard before aught save cries of fear and woe. Um, emphasizing the total absence, right? Never be- heard and had never heard before aught save cries of fears and woe. Um, the balance between strong and sweet, 
and the mournful hollows. Really, really great. Um, uh, so, okay. So, but again, I, I love how it, how it, again, how the sentence goes on, right? Um, and just as his song, you know, his, his, you know, the, his, uh, how his song, you know, goes out and brings into this place the, 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 the light and the joy and the, the brave, uh, you know, the brave fearlessness of the time uh, before the darkening of Valinor. Um, and no, James, remember, at this point, the orcs were not once elves, so we don't get that connection. The orcs are made in mockery of elves, right? They're the, uh, they're the imitation elves, but they're, uh, um, uh, they're, 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 they're not identified. Um, yeah, Kimber says, as his song rolls out, our perspective pans back out into the landscape. Yes, Kimber, and out into history as well, right? Back recalling um, the context, right? Things look really bad here on the mountain. He's in despair, right? Looking over the... De- Remember d- the description we got before? High upon the shoulders of Thangarodrum, he climbed and looked in despair upon the desolation of the land, right? He's in despair, and yet in defiance sings this song, and the song recontextualizes things, right? So that we see beyond the mountains of Thangorodrum, and we see instead the larger picture, right? Um, As we are recalling Valinor. um, Strong and sweet. Anyway. um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, interesting. Carita says she's feeling sorry for the hollows, uh, you know, that they're so mournful, because, of course, with Tolkien, the ground and rocks, you know, the land has memories, so she feels sorry for it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice, Carita, it's the land itself. He looked in despair upon the desolation of the land, right? It is, it's almost like the, the there's, uh, there's some pity in the very, you know, the very pitying heart, the very compassionate heart of Fingen, uh, that might perhaps even make him have pity, uh, for the land, uh, itself. Um, but, uh, Karita, as Marie points out, they did get to experience Fingen's harp this one time. So, you know, that's something, uh, not all rocks and hollows can say that. Um, yeah, good. Um, yep, exactly. Uh, several of you, of course, are already thinking um, exactly along the same lines that I would <laughs> exactly. So Patricia and James and Carson and uh, Marie and several others before uh, uh, Kimber. Yeah, before. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, yeah. Are, of course, remembering Sam in the Tower of Kirith Ungol. I've talked many times over the years about the parallel between these passages, and I've always, even with only the published Silmarillion version of this passage, which is less awesome than the Quentus Silmarillion version of this passage, um, but even in the published Silmarillion, the parallel uh, is clear and a powerful one. But wrap your brain around this. This comes first, right? Sam in the Tower of Kirithungul comes from this, but not in this. But notice, it doesn't just come first in the sense that the Silmarillion material has been stuff that Tolkien's been writing about before, right? This idea, this image, this is brand new in 1937 as he's turning to write The Lord of the Rings. And it's not just Sam in the Tower of Kirithungul, right? 
And it's not just like, Patricia, as you point out, like Sam seeing the star in Mordor, which it certainly is, uh, and which his own song, Sam's song, in the Tower of Kirathongo emphasizes and, and, uh, and, and, uh, uh, and really echoes again here from Fingon. But even Frodo's quest itself, alone now, without counsel of any, he went in search of Maedros, for the thought of his torment troubled his heart, aided by the very mists that Morgoth put abroad. Wait, let me do that again. Aided by the very mists that Morgoth put abroad, he ventured unseen into the fastness of his enemies. Sound like anybody we know? Right? Aided by the very mist that Morgoth put abroad? Yeah. Yeah, you'd think that Sauron would have learned the fact that that whole dawnless day thing can sometimes backfire on you, right? Um, uh the cool thing, the thing which really kind of reading it through this time in the context of, you know, as we've been thinking about it here um, and, and really thinking about the 1937, right? Thinking about the context, he is just picking up. He's just writing the first drafts of chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring here. And we can see this story is taking shape, right? Um, Fingon's story is Frodo's story. Frodo's story is Fingon's story. This these ideas, which are going to be at the heart, right? This this thing, which is the seed, in a sense, of the Lord of the Rings. I, I you, you could make the argument; it'd probably be overstating it, right? But you could make the argument that the quest of the Ring Bearer starts here, right? Um, why does he get to where he's going, right? I mean, Tolkien, not Frodo. Tolkien, when he's when he's writing the story, right? He sets out to write a happy-go-lucky sequel to The Hobbit. Right, another Hobbit story, another story of Hobbit adventure, is what he sets out to do because it's what the publisher wants him to do, right? But he doesn't end up doing it, right? And inescapably, the story gets drawn in different directions, and you can see it. You can see it growing. Those of you who um, read the 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 Lay of Lathian, the Lays of Beleriand, sorry, with me, uh, um, two two volumes ago. Um, remember how I made the argument that you could just see the Lay of Lathian starting to burst out at the seams as he's writing the, the Lay of the Children of Hurin, right? He's writing Turin's story, but increasingly the story of Baron and Luthien keeps interrupting him. Um, and especially, I, I think even, frankly, I find it comical in the second draft of the Lay of the Children of Hurin, how just like the mere contextualization, just like, he just wants to mention that Morwen is from Baron's family, right? But yet, in order to say that, he gets sucked into this whole, like, recounting of the whole story. Just like, the story of Baron and Luthien won't not be told, right? It's just exploding out of Tolkien, and eventually he stops fighting it, right? Um, puts the Lay of the Children of Huron aside, and writes the Lay of Lathian, right? Um, I think we can see the Lord of the Rings starting to bubble up in that same way in some of these passages. Um, he's writing the Silmarillion, right? But it's not just, this bears a distinct similarity to the story that he's going to later tell. It's not just that, right? Um, we can see the story that he's got inside him, the story that he really wants to tell is there, and it's starting to come out. And it's so cool, and it's so cool to see it in the Silmarillion context, and it's so neat that it's happening through the Quintus Silmarillion, with this sort of transitional thing that uh, the, the Quintus Silmarillion has become. Transitional, or not exactly transitional, but this sort of middle ground between the annals and the poems, right? 
And so, in turn, chronologically, within Tolkien's life, we can see also the Quintus Silmarillion serving not only as the capstone of the Silmarillion tradition up to that point, but as the transition point, as the moment when he is, um, when the two worlds, not just the two worlds of his own sort of genres, right, coming together, um, but the two worlds, the Silmarillion world and the Hobbit world, are starting to come together. Um, I am not, of course, going to get to my third point that I wanted to make, but we'll start with that next time. And when we do, um, uh, when we do, uh, we will, so next time we'll start with this and what I want to be looking at, um, pay special attention to stuff that specifically reminds you of the Hobbit stuff that is specifically connected to the Hobbit. Right. Um, and I am, I am super interested in that in this text because it's written after The Hobbit, after The Hobbit is being published already, and he's thinking about the sequel, and he's writing this text, right? Um, so that's some really, really interesting stuff. So let's think about that. Um, uh, think about where those things came up during this past week's reading, also known as last week's reading, and look at... So we're going to finish the Quintus Silmarillion next time. Knock on wood. And... Um, uh, uh, we're going to um, keep thinking. So I want you to keep thinking about that as we get through the ending. Because, of course, after this is where it's going to start to unravel. Um, that is when uh, we start to get to the point where he has completed less of it. And pretty soon it's going to start petering out, sadly. Um, uh, really sadly, because I love the Quintus Silmarillion. This version of the Quintus Silmarillion is, is really fun. I think it's really awesome. Um if not for the fact that it ends early, I would choose this over the published Silmarillion, frankly. Um, uh, but anyway. All right. So next time, end of the Quintus Silmarillion. We'll start with thinking about the relationship of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, and uh, and then we'll move, we'll move forward from there. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, this was really fun. Thank you for indulging uh, my uh, desire to do a lot of style time here this week. I uh, hope you had fun with that. And we will see you guys next week. Not traveling again next week. So looking forward to being here at the normal place in time. Thanks, everybody. Bye now.